0: Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom.
1: We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com And click on the link, Nurtured Foundations Online Course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations Online Course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations Online Course. Hi, guys. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. This is Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey, from For Nutrients Sake. And thanks, guys, for making the time to listen and be here with us today. We're so honored to have you guys. And on today, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about something different. Um, On Ma'am, Modern Ancestral Mamas, we love learning about farming and we ta- We love talking to farmers. Um, we've, we've had several episodes with um, some farmers and we wanted to bring on an expert to discuss how to connect more with the land and our farmers. And specifically, we wanted to talk a little bit about this buzzword that's sort of, or buzz phrase that's been floating around in the health space specifically and kind of like the farming community. And that is regenerative agriculture. So chances are many of our listeners have heard the term regenerative agriculture. And if you haven't, that's okay. We're going to define it. Um, But it's become so popular lately that now it is actually starting to seep its way into grocery store marketing um, and onto products. And we're starting to see the marketing world pick it up and use it to you know, their benefit. Um, So for this reason, we wanted to bring on Daniel Griffith from the Robinia Institute and Tim Shell Wildland. And Daniel is a storyteller, a hunter husbandman, husbandman, hopefully I said that right, and a lover of the wild woods. He is an undeserving father to three wonderful children and an unworthy husband to the best partner this world has to give he is the co-founder of the Robinia Institute, which is an organization working to facilitate the human-scale regeneration of the world's grasslands, forests, and the economic and ecological livelihoods of their inhabitants through holistic management and wildland ecology. And he and his wife co-founded Tim Shell Wildland. It's a pioneering and large-scale rewilding project in central Virginia that explores the regeneration of relationship. He is the award-winning author of four books and has been described by Alan Savory as the po- Poet Laureate of Holistic Management. Woo, Daniel, oh my gosh, <laughs> welcome.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Corey, for having me. It's a blessing to be here.
0: I mean, okay, if you don't hear this introduction and and immediately have a bajillion questions, you're on the wrong show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, totally, there were several points there. Rewilding. Um, I have to go back and like look at it again. All the things, like all, all everything.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Wild I have plenty of time, things. so yeah. you guys lead. I'll follow.
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, let's dive in as much as we can. Um, so usually we're going to start our episodes with uh, a question that's related to the show. But today, um, we're going to start with this quote that you have on your Robinia Institute website, um, and, and then I think we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. So uh, the quote goes like this. Does soil health matter if we destroy our neighbors and community in the process? Can we have healthy soil without healthy souls? And can we have healthy souls if our society is decadent at the core? I mean... What
2: <laughs> L- little questions for our Friday afternoon,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> everybody, buckle up because yeah. here we go. Um, all right. So, can you explain to us what the message is that you're trying to get across with this, um, with this quote, and with with what you're doing?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Keep keep me on track. I have the tendency to ramble, and uh, we have so much to discuss. So, just start <laughs> yelling if I start rambling. It's no offense to me, not not one bit. Um. Yeah, so regeneration, regenerative agriculture, as you guys said in the in the beginning, it, it's, it's a happening word, it's a buzzword, it's increasing in the agricultural uh, verbiage of today, it's increasing in uh, the consumers, um, you know, food products and such, you can walk into Whole Foods, actually, if I have my data correct, I think in 2021 or 2022. Um, the highest grossing product, that is to say, the most sold product at Whole Foods uh, countrywide was a verified regenerative milk product. And so the number one food sold and questionably the largest, you know, natural type food grocer or whatever you want to call it, um, is a regenerative product, right? And so we see this idea of regeneration everywhere. Like, you know, regenerative was a word used at the COP26 conference uh, in Europe, uh, talking about climate change and world leaders got together at the World Economic Forum and they and they threw around the word regenerative. Obviously, it, it has great importance. I think we can just accept that in this conversation. What it means, though, and, and how it truly applies to the uh, life on this planet, all life, human life, plant life, nematodes in the soil, etc., all of life, the singular life, as I would like to call it, Uh, Is quite open for conversation. I don't want to say debate, uh, but definitely a conversation. So, for instance, uh, some of the leaders around this quote regenerative agricultural movement, let's say, uh, kiss the ground. It's an organization out of California, a nonprofit. Uh, They have a absolutely monumental. Uh, foot in the, uh, media space surrounding. Yeah, they have the, a
0: documentary coming out soon, right?
2: They do. So they, yeah. they had one called kiss the ground that came out on Amazon years ago. I, I, right. I don't know, 2017, 2018, maybe. And then they have one that's coming out called common ground. Uh, right. I, I think it's being selectively, uh, premiered in some theaters this month, next month, something like that. And, uh, and they have a definition of regeneration, which is something along the lines of, um, You know, it's an agriculture that heals the land, soils and increases its biodiversity while harvesting food or while producing food or something like that. And it's a good definition in a very modern sense, right? We're healing the land while producing food. Our work, uh, really the work of my wife and I, Morgan, um, doesn't stand as a contest against that. As I said, it's more of a conversation, less of a a debate, but it's very clear that in the modern age of high technology, uh, high fossil fuel spend, uh, high collaboration between many different spheres of human activity, right? So uh, farmers are collaborating with scientists who are collaborating with fossil fuel, you know, engineer, you know, type and industries. I mean, like there's huge amounts of collaboration across industry pollination, if you want to use that terminology. Uh, I struggle with using the word pollination for such a thing, but it's, it's still pollination, cross-pollination. Um, we have this except, uh, exceptional ability to increase the landscape's function while producing food. Right, That's what this regenerative movement is all about. From Kiss the Ground's definition, and I can provide you so many more, the Rodale Institute's definition, another large player uh, education and uh, outreach organization on regenerative agriculture, all of their definitions are very singular heal the land and produce food. Uh, They have a little nuance in their grammar, but that's about what they're getting at. And and what the quote on our site really gets to is is really our, as it stands now, my wife and I's life work, which is, it became clear to us, we've been full-time farmers for the last decade plus, uh, volunteered and been uh, employed on farms for maybe 15 years. And so we've been around agriculture and a regenerative version of that agriculture. Uh, for a large por- portion of our adult lives. And um, what became very clear to us is that regeneration is very easy. It, it's very easy to increase soil organic matter. That is to say, it, it increase the functioning life in that soil. It, it's very easy to increase biodiversity. So the number of plants growing in a particular space, right? Just plant it, right? Go online, buy some seeds, throw them out, and you have increased biodiversity. These things are very easy. But the, quote, regeneration... Of the society that surrounds that soil, that is to say, the regeneration of the peoples that inhabit the landscape, that are the landscape, uh, is an entirely different thing. It's an entirely different thing. And so, w- what you see is, you know, so for instance, not to make this whole conversation very negative, because we got to emerge into some bit of hope, and the hope is there, but we have to go through this first part first. You know, it, it's uh, let's look at like chickens or pigs, for instance. You know, my wife and I, we used to raise hundreds of pigs a year, thousands, thousands of chickens. And the interesting thing is that entire system, those chickens and those pigs, which are omnivores, right? So they have a very diverse diet, not like herbivores, like a cow, a goat, or a sheep that just eats grass. Omnivores have a diverse diet. Pigs, chickens being omnivores, we realized that every single month, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of pig feed and chicken feed will arrive on semi-trucks and dump trucks and box trucks and things like this. And, and, and after years of doing this, we started to realize that while we, was, we were selling, quote, regenerative chicken at the local farmer's market or regenerative forest-raised pork at the local grocery stores, the local food co-ops or on the on-farm store, we were relying on, or I should say we had a complete reliance, a complete dependence on the industrial, albeit organic and non-GMO, but the industrial agricultural system. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. So um, my husband and I have a very small scale homestead. We have two pigs. We have
2: um, uh,
0: we have chickens in our freezer (laughs) and then we have some laying hens. (laughs) But this is all just to feed our family. Yes. And through this whole process, we live in um, coastal Georgia. We live fairly in a fairly remote area. Um, Finding feed for our animals, even organic You know, run-of-the-mill organic feed has been very difficult, and I have I completely agree with you because there has been so many times when I've looked at him and just been like, "This is ridiculous!" Like we are going to you know Tractor Supply or actually Tractor Supply is pretty much the only option, Um, or trying to get something from Azure Standard or something like that that is being shipped to us, and we're not really opting out of that system at all. You know, we're opting out of the of the um, industrial um, slaughtering system, I suppose, yeah. or raising and then, you know, having somebody else slaughter the animals, but we're not getting out of the system, you know, beyond that.
2: Yeah. And, and, and you're speaking so briskly to a point that I was making with way too many words. So thank you. And the, <laughs> and the, and the point is this regenerative as it stands today, does not demand a new paradigm. It just hmm. demands a new outcome. It hmm, okay. just demands a new outcome. And, and, and that's not necessarily an entirely evil thing. I don't, I don't say that as it's 100% evil. I, I think it's an opportunity for humankind in the modern world to truly participate in the system and change our paradigm. We have to change our paradigm. The outcome isn't the only thing that matters, right? For instance, you can raise, like I was getting at, you know, thousands of chickens and hundreds of pigs a year, um, while depending on the conventional monocrop agriculture, albeit organic and albeit non-GMO, but it's still mm-hmm. monocrop tillage-based singular systems where life mm-hmm. is not welcome, right? Um, and it's depending on that. And um, we realized this maybe you know six, seven years ago, my wife and I, and we, we started to pivot. And, and I offer this to you. I hope this helps you. And, and maybe there's somebody else, uh, another one of your listeners who are doing the same thing that you're doing. And I offer it to them as well. Um, comfrey, I don't know if you're familiar, familiar. It's a herbaceous perennial. It's a marvelous plant. It's a nutrient accumulator or a dynamic accumulator, depending on your verbiage, which basically means it sends very deep tap roots into the soil. It it mines particular nutrients, macro and micro minerals, primary compounds, if you like, that plants of the same type don't have access to. It has a very deep rooted system and it also pools up minerals that it doesn't need. So in some sense, it's, 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 it's like a good Samaritan type plant. But the marvelous thing about it, in, in terms of the conversation, is it has thirty-six percent protein, and it has an amino acid uh, called methionine. So uh-huh. uh, all omnivores need methionine in order to put on weight, and really, in order to produce energy from their feed. Uh, very few herbaceous perennials have methionine in them. Uh, annual grains and the like have methionine, which is why we, you know, feed chickens and pigs grains. We need the methionine. We need the protein, right? Grains are easy to produce. They're easy to harvest, but we also need the methionine. Comfrey, my wife and I, we raised uh, 500 chickens one year in the Joel Salatin type uh, pastured poultry model, uh, feeding them only fresh water and comfrey, uh, you know, rotating them through the pastures, eating bugs and such. And uh, in 10 weeks, we produce on average a four and a half pound meat bird. Excellent. Zero inputs off the farm, entirely a perennially based system um, the comfrey was all fresh harvested, but we've pioneered on our, in our wildland project here in central Virginia, some comfrey storage techniques. And it's a native plant. It's a pollinator, it, you know, it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, it, it's a, a little bit of creativity is needed, but what we see here. And I offer to that, you, I offer that to you as, as just a little side uh, of advice, but it also speaks to the point we, we need a paradigm shift, right? Simply doing what the industrial system does better. Is not going to sustain a healthy citizenry, civilization, people, community, society, whatever you want to call it. Um, so much of what the regenerative agriculture movement is doing is taking what the industrial system has created and just doing it a little bit better, right? So the industrial system produces food by destroying soils, work and produce food by not destroying soils. But we're, but we're not going to heal our community. We're not going to nurture the relationship between us and the soil, the soil and the nematodes, the nematodes back to the roots of the plants, the roots of the plant back to the cattle, the cattle back to us in any sort of meaningful and sustainable way. I'm uh, in the middle of writing a book uh, as, as we speak that says some pretty outrageous things. Um, what One of which is, you know, we see the narrative around this space and, and maybe you guys have participated. I have. I know that. But uh, it goes something like, you know, we can't sustain the world, right? We don't want to just keep it as it is, we want to regenerate it. So sustainable is not good enough, we have to regenerate. And and I think that's a fine phrase, you see it all the time, you know, me being occupied in this space, uh, and well placed for the last 15 years, I see it a lot, maybe others have as well. But I, I think what you know, and I'm writing in this book, is it, it's that by trying to create a regenerative world to solve for sustainability, we've created a, a regenerative world that's not sustainable. You know, for instance, our farm, we were dependent upon conventional, be it organic and be it non-GMO agriculture to in the importation of grains for our pigs and chickens, right? This was not sustainable. The second that uh, monocrop agriculture, um, and I give this to you as a literal example, but as soon as, uh, really at the height of COVID when the Ukrainian war began, height of COVID in, in some sense, maybe the end of COVID in Ukrainian war began, uh, conventional again, be it organic, be it non-GMO, be it conventional in, in the truest sense from an, a chemical perspective or not, conventional agricultural fertilizer increased by hundreds of percents, right? So like our neighbor, he plants 600 acres of corn, rotated corn, soy, and wheat, and his, uh, yearly fertilizer bill is typically about 17, $18,000. Uh, as soon as this transition from COVID to the Ukrainian war happened in the distribution and globalized system of trade, um, his fertilizer bill went from 18,000 to 120,000 a year, Ugh. right? And we were buying, and, and that's that's just fertilizer. And in, 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 in our system, the pigs and the chickens, albeit regenerative, rotationally foraged, for, foraged through hundreds of acres of pastures and forests and savannas and such, it was still dependent upon fertilizer prices. Although we were not fertilizing our fields, we were still dependent upon the feed produced by fertilized fields, which depended upon what we call mother culture, right? The system that we've created of an international distribution system still reliant upon a degenerative uh, land use in in any sense, from fossil fuels to agricultural erosion and and other things. My point is long-winded to say, we realized that in order to truly achieve a true regeneration, we had to start in the soul and work to the soil right now. The narrative is that soil health matters, right? And so scientists from, you know, in the West of the university of Oregon or Oklahoma, I, I forget which uh, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Stefan von Villet uh, all the way to the East in Massachusetts, the biological food association, Dan Kittrich, uh, they are all looking at the connection, the association between nutrient rich or healthy soil and nutrient dense foods. So I'm sure on this podcast, you guys have talked about nutrient dense foods or nutrient enriched foods They go by different names. But the point is nutrients containing, I'm sorry, foods containing actual nutrients. These doctors, these scientists are studying the relationship of those foods back to the soil. And they've concluded two things. And I find this really interesting, especially for this conversation. The first thing that they've concluded is that the health of the soil in which the foods were grown in, invariably in a very linear fashion is connected to the nutrient density of the food that's produced. So if you are eating beef uh, that is grown from a farm that does not have healthy soil, it's not healthy beef. And if you're eating beef from land or a farm that has healthy soil, it's healthy beef. So it's, it's intrinsically relatable, the nutrient richness or the health of the soil with the meat. But the interesting component is this, and I said there was two components that they have found, the first being that soil health matters. The second one is that soil health is only understandable via place and place-based process. And so let's just break that down as high level as possible because the science gets way too intense even for me. So when a plant grows, it mines like a coal miner or a gold miner, right? It goes into the soil. It finds a nutrient or mineral that it needs or it requires to grow. And it sucks in that mineral via natural process. And what we call the soil food web, nematodes and fungi and bacteria swimming around and all of this marvelous things. And then it sucks those nutrients into its root system and it, and it, and it leaves them in its leaves, right? So when the leaves of grasses are blowing in the wind, the soil's nutrients are actually up in there as well. So when a, when an animal comes in and eats those, that, that material, that vegetative material, the nutrients that were in the soil are now in the rumen of the cow. It's now in the stomach of the cow and now if we take that stomach right and it and it let's say it you know places but it's manure somewhere else um and we export that manure out of the system right we've taken nutrients grown in the soil and we've taken them and given them to someone else now there's a net loss of nutrients in the soil and so what, what 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 these scientists are finding is that if regeneration that is to say the cycling of life's nutrients is not contained in place it cannot be sustained so you might have all the nutrients in your soil to be regenerative for a year or two and produce nutrient-dense foods you might but as you export these nutrients as we put them into international distribution systems as we grow corn here to feed the world there right we are nutritionally we're making our landscape nutritionally impoverished year over year over year and so now with these scientists and what our philosophy is saying we're converging at the point that regeneration has to be local It can't be anything else. And if it is local, it has to begin in the soul of communities working from the inside out and then progressing to the soil. And that's when the big questions get to be asked. Can we regenerate the soils of the land without first addressing the soul of the community? That is to say, if agriculture is regenerative here by depending upon the degradation of over there, the enslavement of over there, the reduction of fertility over there, right? this We have a soul problem, right? This is not a regenerative system, right? We have a societal problem that we have to resolve. And so our work at the Rubini Institute, our work at Timsha Wildland, a lot of the content that we're putting out, the media to the books that we're writing and have written, it's surrounding the question, what does an agriculture that feeds the soul of the community first look like? And and what we're inevitably gravitating towards is a more wild, a more autonomous, a more localized, a, a less fossil fuel driven, more human infused. That's why it's human scale. We use this word a lot in our literature, human scale system that depends upon life as the limiting factor. Right. And so the last bit of the rambling is, you know, in the conventional system, if you want more corn, you fertilize more. If you want to harvest the corn faster, you get a bigger combine. So the limit, the ceiling of production in the conventional model in any industry, but especially in agriculture, is fossil fuels, it's machinery, it's speed, it's something, it's some extraterrestrial force, meaning it's a force not innate to the natural world. But in human scale agriculture, looking at the soul and progressing to the soil, what is the limiting factor? It's how much life you have. How much biodiversity you have? How many cows do you have? How many happy people and happy children running around do you have? That's the limiting factor. The limiting factor is life, which we can address. It's not fossil fuels or machinery.
0: Okay. Um, so if, if we can just like condense it, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I... I absolutely, I I love this idea of um, thinking maybe beyond the regenerative uh, um, kaleidoscope. Okay, right. So you you've got it's not that necessarily that regenerative is a bad thing. Not
2: at all. You're right. Um,
0: it's that we are that that it's rather limiting at this point, and that we need to be kind of considering the bigger picture, um, which, you know, totally makes sense to me. I think that there is you're absolutely right, like that they're the soul of the of the community and of the people is more important. Yeah, more important, I guess, than um, than what is literally happening with the um, agriculture, because if the soul of the people You know, if people are are deep within them longing for um, a a better system, um, then that system will come because that's, you know, that's how people work. People make things happen that they long for. Um,
1: Yeah, man, this is... I know. But see, the thing is, that feels almost more unattainable to me um, because we are so we've been so trained in our industrial modern society for how many years now, almost a hundred years now that it feels really difficult to change as a society, our perception of food and the natural world and health and medicine. You know what I mean? Cause, cause I'm realizing now, which I'm sure, you know, obviously, you know, it's all connected. I mean, this idea of this, industrial model, um, this mechanization, this reductionist view of everything, um, of ever is literally connected in pretty much every aspect of our life. Um, but I, this, this feels like too much to you. Like the idea of,
0: of, of shifting the soul of the, of, of the community feels too much.
1: When you, when I, when I take several steps back, yes, it's like, this is so big. How on earth do we do this? But um, I've, I've, I mean, I was so enamored with your story, Daniel, that I have already heard you on several podcasts. Um, so I know what else you say um, as far as giving the average person practical uh, advice on how to move forward with this. So w- we will get to that for sure. And that is where I think we need to most likely end. Um, yeah. because that's the best part of it. But I, I, I did have a, th- uh, a few thoughts that I just wanted to interject with real quick. Um, out of curiosity, have you heard of Will Harris from White Oak Pastures?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, decent friends. Will. Harris. Okay. Yeah, I know him well.
1: Um, because what's interesting to... W- okay. So one of the things that you're really speaking to is and speaking about is the community, really not only just regenerating the soil, but also working on the soul of the community. And at least, you know, based on what he says, one of the things that White Oak Pastures has done, apparently, is regenerate the community in the rural town in Georgia. Um, So, you know, they're bringing people back to that town in Georgia. they the people that are living there are staying so that they can work. Um, and I'm wondering if that that's just an example off the top of my head. I don't know if that's, you know, a great example or not, but there's somebody I wonder- else
0: who's doing that too. There's another, there's a woman and I can't remember what her name is, but she has a very popular Instagram account and podcast and books mm. and stuff but, but Jill? They have, Jill Lincoln, yes, yes yes yeah thank you yes yeah yeah so she yeah, does yeah. she has that same idea where they're trying to revitalize their small i don't know they're somewhere in the midwest town um or northwest maybe anyway but that's the same idea is that they're trying to revitalize this small town sort of um atmosphere mm-hmm. and um mo- move their community through that sort of thing it's fascinating to me because we moved from a you know we moved from the dc area dc metro area to georgia this rural sort of georgia town and um there is so much land around here that is not that and like people who are sort of farming um obviously in Georgia we have a lot of pine tree farms so there's not necessarily um food but um it's fascinating to me because you would think that out here there would be a lot of people able to grow their own food and there were more people in the DC metro area doing that than there are here
2: yeah
0: and it's it's been like mind-blowing to me because of that but even in that, in that highly densely populated area, there was a lot more people trying to do backyard chickens and vegetable gardens and um, even, even actually people doing, um, you know, organic farming and that kind of thing on smaller plots um, than there is here. And here there's just not a lot. You know, this is a small town and there's just, it's basically a food desert. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, I think, I, I think. Well, Christine, um, I mean, both of you guys are presenting so many good thoughts. I, I think our on the daily, my wife and I struggle with your exact response. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you feel like you're alone, um, but I'm right there with you. I I, I think a huge step for us. Um, it, it was in a journey with uh, a couple people. Um, doesn't really matter who, um, but w- we started to realize. That a lot of what the a lot of the narrative surrounding this better food movement, call it regenerative if you like, it was this preconceived notion of what the world was supposed to look like that we were seeking. And as you start to scientifically etymol- etym- etymologically looking at the linguistics, archaeologically, archaeobotany, right? So not looking at old civilizations, but old plants and such. What you start to realize is that um, either Our our understood notions of how the world ecologically should be are either wrong or we really don't know. You know, so for instance, regenerative as a grazing system. So if you, you know, are getting herbivores that are being grazed, let's say beef, cattle and sheep, I'm sorry, uh, cattle, sheep and goats uh, grazing herbivores, uh, ruminants uh, that you would see on most regenerative farms. The the paradigm that that system was built out of, which we call rotational grazing or adaptive grazing or holistic planned grazing, you see it with so many different names. It was born out of this idea that when Europeans first came to the New World, um, which is now North America and was Turtle Island um, to most, um, that large herds of herbivores generally graze this environment. You see this all over the literature. Million head strong herds of bison roamed these great undulating prairies and meadows and fields, and uh, and that animal impact and grazing pressure created a landscape rich in grass, grasses and vegetation and communities surrounding them, and and the I mean I, I'm doing my own research and, and and such, but the work of Fred Provenza he wrote a book called Nourishment, which I encourage everyone to read. It's basically how animals and their instincts and their foraging and grazing instincts actually can help humans be much better in, in our own diets. Um, he discovered, and, and many others I have discovered uh, like him, that I'm not entirely sure, that we are not entirely sure, I should say, that that was ever really the case. There, there perhaps never really was large herds of bison roaming these landscapes, and we see this for two reasons. One of which is between 1492 when Columbus landed, right, and he sailed the blue, and uh, fifteen thirty is believed that ninety three to ninety seven percent of all indigenous peoples east to the Mississippi died. They passed due to diseases, tribal warfare, uh, inter European relationships, etc. So let's just use the more conservative number, ninety three percent. Now, Corey, you said you were from, you know, you were in the D C metro area. You tell me. In sixteen oh seven, when the first, you know, European colonists uh, landed in any sort of permanent uh, settlement which is Jamestown, Virginia, Mm
1: -hmm. it took them
2: another 50 years to get to the interior of really the Piedmont or the Appalachian Mountains or the Shenandoah Valley. Mm -hmm. And so 1650 is 100 years after 1550. And 1550 was the date that we saw 93 to 97% of all indigenous peoples east of the Mississippi had passed. So for 100 years, imagine if 93% of all people living in the DC metro area just left. And then 100 years later, you came back to the D.C. metro area. What would it look like? It wouldn't look like what it looks like today. I guarantee that. And so automatically in the 1650s, when you saw these European colonists, when when you read the writings of these European colonists, even if they did perceive a herd of a million head of bison, it was only because that 93% of all indigenous peoples who used to hunt and live with them were gone. Right. We see a total change in landscape function 100 years after a great extinction event, a human extinction event. Second to this, we also see that the landscape east of the Mississippi never really could have well hold or held uh, such large herds of bison. This is a forested biome, meaning that forests grow more predominantly than any other thing. This is not the prairies. This is not the great prairies of the central states of America's or, you know, eastern Ukraine or other Great Plains type regions all across the world. Um, this is a meadowed landscape, which means that you had little meadows, little pockets of grasses and wildflowers and forbs and legumes and trees and shrubs and sedges and rushes and all of this great panoply, this great diversity of vegetative, uh, of, of life. Um, none of that could have supported large herds of herbivores, right? And the point is that I'm getting to, and like I say, I, I ramble too much, so I apologize. But the point is simply this, we have to, I think, revision The original foundation of what the world is supposed to look like ecologically and what we find there is that um, a much more community-centric approach a much more diverse diet a much less soil-focused paradigm is needed and communities working together seems to be the way that the world has functioned for eons and eons and eons in small little localized communities right and and in that there's hope now Corey, like you said, like we live in a, in a community, there's 109 people who live here in this area of Nelson County, Virginia. Um, one neighbor that we have, we have only a couple neighbors, there's only 109 of us. Um, but one neighbor, he's second boat Jamestown. So they've been here since the 1600s. Another neighbor is the original uh, King George I land grant of 250,000 acres. And so they've been here since the early 1700s. And, um, and the most interesting thing is life developed among the river or upon the river systems so we're right along the james river and then the railroads for hundreds of years and then the railroads developed along the river systems because that's yeah. where the valleys were and that's when life stayed and then the interstate highways developed not during not alongside river systems but alongside valley chains and through valleys and i'm sorry uh, mountain chains and through valleys and other things and life moved on and so if you study the economic uh, uh, degeneration of rural communities you can watch it go from a river based economy to a railroad based economy to an interstate and global economy and life moved away with it and so right now as we speak we've um uh, let's say we have five neighbors four of them have died and their properties have been sold to the for the first time since the 1600s to an outsider I mean we are seeing the large scale transformation of rural communities now not in terms of economics but in land holding, right like one neighbor came in from from New York City he's a uh, a doctor and he just wanted a second home and you know you had covid bringing people out to rural like the point is rural society health in this moment in my opinion and I think it, it, it is a good opinion to be had but in our opinion, is as important, if not more important than the soils inside those rural communities. Does, do, do, does that make sense? Farming left, yeah. farming left when our ability to move products left, when local communities started to degrade and all of a sudden the interstates can bring commerce everywhere. And then life left with it, right? All of these people around us, our neighbors, the people we love, when they pass their children don't want their homes. For the first time in 200, 300 years, think about that. It's a societal problem. We live in a, in a time of societal decadence and the soil is following. The soil weeps when we weep. We weep when the soil weeps. We are connected in this so, so, such way. Anyways, I can go on. But the point of societal health, I think, is the great work of our age. And I don't know completely how it's done. And it keeps us up at night, Christine. Um, but it's important. It's really important.
1: Wow. I, I feel like I have to digest all of that also because I, I agree with so much of what you're saying. Um,
2: I, I think if like to get into some nu- nu- nutrition, just like, I don't know, I get off of the history uh, yeah. and um, the philosophy, if you like, but to get very grounded when we're, when we're thinking about, you know, what are the foods that we should be consuming in this better world that is healing from the soul and the soil's perspective? Like, what does that really look like? and the really interesting thing, there's tons of science that you can dig into from, I mean, Fred Provenza, to Dan to the Biological Food Association, to so many more. Um, it's that all life in place is trying to adapt to that place. So when there's a particular pollutant in the air, all the life around us is adapting and purifying that pollutant through its plant tissues, through its own lungs, through its hairs, through its fibers, whatever the, the organism is, just as we try to adapt and, and purify our own lives from that pollutant. And so when you eat locally, when you breathe locally, as, as some people say, you're breathing and you're eating your biome, right? When you eat those foods that are coming around you, they're actually healthier. Even if they don't grow from healthier soils, they are still healthier for you than they would be some for you know, somebody who lives on the other side of the world or on the other side of the continent. And so when, when when we talk to people, you know, societal health is so big, local communities working together in rural environments to heal the rural environment and the community and the soil, it's so big. Farmers cooperating and collaborating is surprisingly hard to achieve. We're very rugged. We're very individualistic. Um, and I think that is a very sad and negative thing. Um, but when we talk to people, I think it's very easily understood. Local food is infinitely better than national food or international food. And so when we try to eat a better world, when we try to breathe our biome, when we're trying to let the nature around us become us through the eating process, that's what we're doing, right? When you eat a beef, a steak, let's say a New York strip steak, and you put it in your body, it becomes you in a very literal scientific sense. No spirits, no emotions needed. In a very literal scientific sense, it, it is becoming you. In the same way, when you breathe, that breath becomes you. And so the best and and, and most viable solution to these problems and is a foundational solution, meaning that is an easy first step, is try your best, if possible, to find the local farms doing decent or good work. Find those farms and then just start creating a community around them. Anything that you can acquire locally instead of going to the grocery store, do that. And I'm not saying you have to become some sort of homesteader that buys everything or makes everything locally and preserves it. And you spend all of your time canning and freeze drying and, and dehydrating and such. I mean, do that if that makes sense. I love doing that. But the point is, you know, I'll give you an example. I love corn tortillas. There's an organization out of the mid-Atlantic that makes some pretty fine to- corn tortillas. And then one of our neighbors um, neighbor is a big word for it. He lives about five minutes down the way, ten minutes down the way, which for us is, is, is quite a, a, a distance. Um, he, he's growing uh hand planted hand harvested heirloom cherokee white corn that he then hand mills and uh he was at the local farmer's market and, and we were like wait a second how much of this do you have and he was like oh about 50 pounds and we just it was like all of it like yeah <laughs> like we want all you know when we're going to preserve it and make our own corn tortillas the point is You don't have to live your life in such a stressful way where all you do every waking hour of the day that you can spare is try to change your life and buy all of these foods locally because Daniel on some random podcast told you to, or because this nutritionist online said you should, you don't have to feel stressed. The point is over time, create the relationships in your community to understand what's going on because that farm does not have an Instagram. That farm does not have a website. That farm just lives and grows food in the true old sense. And so as you live and as you grow community, you find the people growing the food, right? And so just get ingrained in your community. Start meeting people in your community. And if you live in the D.C. metro area, that means something different than if you live in the middle of nowhere, Nelson County in Virginia. It's going to mean something different everywhere. Regeneration, I believe, is a local property. We keep trying to make it this regenerative. Uh, I'm sorry, we keep trying to make it this universal global phenomenon. It's a local property. Create a local community. Find a local community. Get enmeshed in your local community, whatever that means. And um, what emerges, I think, will surprise you.
1: I'm Corey. I'm like on the edge of my seat because I I've been dying to ask him this question. This was actually one of the one of the ones that I'm so curious to hear your response. But um, so we are pretty active in the A. Price Foundation. Um, I'm I think that maybe you've heard of it, you know of it, you're familiar with it. Okay. Um, and in this health space, which it's so wonderful that there are health spaces out there that are bringing awareness to, um, these, this different way of living. One of the detriments that I see is that there's, there becomes this obsession with finding the perfect food Mm -hmm. and this obsession with, uh, finding the farmers that are doing, the perfect practices. And I have seen a lot firsthand how people will go to extreme lengths to ship food across the nation from that one farmer that is doing it perfectly, even though they have access to the same thing, maybe of a different quality, depending on what your standards are. Um, And I'm just, I'm so curious to hear what you think about this. I, I got in a conversation with someone about this recently because, um, like I said, one, one individual that I know is shipping raw milk from Pennsylvania to Texas. And in Texas, we have tons of raw milk farms here. And I mean, there's at least 10 of them on the resource list that I've curated as one of the co-chapter leaders for the Weston Price Foundation. And one of them in particular is like my personal favorite. Um, does he feed his cows organic grains? No, he doesn't, but I've been to his farm. I've had conversations with him. Um, I've kind of like seen, I've, I've seen his practices. I've heard the stories about his family and his sons. And it's one of those things where, and, and I also very much love the milk that he produces. It's a completely different breed of cow. It's not Jersey cows. And I think, I don't care that this milk is not as superior as the one that's hand milked by the Amish farmer or whatever in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm personally choosing to support this farmer, but that's just because I have built a relationship with him and I appreciate what he's doing and that kind of thing. But I'm wondering how we can, those of us that are in that health space, how can we, talk to each other and have the conversation about being more open to the local food movement that is near us versus buying the most quote unquote nutrient dense food based on that farmer's practices. I would love if you, if you wanted to talk about this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Another big question. Um, I, I I agree with you completely. Um, for, for business sake, I, I've never been allowed to give up Instagram. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: I just, you know how that is. Uh, but I've, oh, all, I've always... So
0: many times I have wanted to. <laughs> right.
2: I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the worst social media marketer. Um, because although I guess I can take a good photo and put up a memorable caption on Instagram, you know, I'm not out there. I'm not looking at reels all the time or, you know, I'm not network. I don't know. Everybody says you have to like, like certain things and comments <laughs> and all of that stuff. And, I, and I'm horrible at it because it stresses me out. It stresses me out so completely that like my whole day is ruined. <laughs> if I, if I find myself, you know, browsing after a post or it's just, and, and the reason is I'm so overwhelmed with the information, you know, like there's, there's a plethora of books written today about, you know, how much Data humans receiving and and, and we have to care about all the things happening all over the world, but our own neighbor is suffering and we don't have enough time to help them, but we help the people in some like, there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had there and another time, another place. Um, But the amount of nutritionists that come out, you know, like there's my, my friend sent me this, so I guess I've seen a couple of reels, but um, it was this guy who basically just like stitched together a lot of these social media health influencers. You know, and it was like, don't drink, you know, X amount of water because it, your body is really a salt water being and you really need like salt water. And then another person was like, don't eat fish because fish drink this particular kind of salt, like, and it just mm-hmm. led for like 10 minutes. And the guy in the background just like acting, you know, in the video, he just kept pulling out food and it was like, don't eat eggs. And then, Oh wait, you eat the Oak of the egg, but no, the, o- the Oak of the egg has cancer. And it was just like this huge story where he just ended up throwing everything in his in his plate at the wall and you who's know, acting of course. And it's just like, what do I eat then? Right. There's so much talk about what do we eat? I think that whole narrative is wrong in the same way that I think the whole narrative of this, Million herd or million head herd of bison roaming is is what we're really trying to mimic. Um, I I think what humans are supposed to be eating is also very problematic, which is one reason I gravitate towards the Weston A. Price Foundation. What Price, Doctor Price, did in the nineteen tens and twenties was document a whole plethora of indigenous peoples living in their indigenous ways, eating their indigenous foods that have no connection to each other other than the four, five, six principles, whatever he elucidated, which have no bearing on each other, right? It Mm -hmm. it wasn't, you should eat a particular amount of fiber a day. It wasn't that a particular amount of proteins coming from animals should occupy your diet every, like it had none of that prescription, right? It was just like during the pregnancy and birthing process, there were sacred foods. Those sacred foods generally had high vitamin K and vitamin A, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Like you can get that from seaweed, you can get that from good nutrient-dense beef, right? There's a whole plethora of life that surrounds the uh, the dinner plate, to say it very simply. And so um, with that narrative change, right? We, we have to embark on a new paradigm. And the new paradigm is, um, well, let me defer. I'm, I'm just gonna quote a, a good friend of mine who I think said it more brilliantly. I, and I was doing a podcast with him Uh, heavy into the science space. He's a PhD scientist uh, studying nutrient density in food again. And he, I mean, they've raised $12 million to build this unbelievable technology and an open source, $12 million in this open source framework to study nutrient density for consumers to study nutrient density. Oh yeah,
1: I've heard of this. um,
2: And uh, I sat him down on a podcast and I said, okay, my good friend, what's more important? Nutrient dense cattle or happy cattle. Mm. And he looked at me, and I'm expecting nutrient dense cattle. I mean, this bloke just spent $12 million to prove nutrient density in beef is the most important thing, right? Like he's going to say nutrient dense cattle. And he leans back in his chair and he says, Daniel, that's the simplest question I've ever been asked. Happy cows. Unequivocally, happy cows matters more than nutrient dense cattle. And it was a pivotal moment. In in my intellectual life, because I, I felt like that was true. But if the scientists are now saying that that is true, what is good local food? It has nothing to do with soil health. It has nothing to do with its chemical nature. Obviously, if the soil could be healthy, that's great. Obviously, if we can use less chemicals, great, right? These are all very good things. But at the end of the day, if a species can't come together to co-create a solution to the solvent of a problem that occupies the entirety of that species, we are doomed, period, I think, end of story. If we can't come together as a people and co-create a solution to the solving of these problems, they will always be problems. And so what I mean by that is if farmers are always exporting their goods, if they're always shipping their their milk, as you say, from Pennsylvania to Texas, the, 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 the culture around the Texas farmers die right? It has to die. And as that culture dies, they die, right? Because I mean, that's what happened in rural America. It's what we described early on this podcast with the rivers to the railroads to the interstates. As the culture surrounding the production of food in rural communities died, the production of rural food died, right? There's 109 of us that live here in, in this area of Nelson County, Virginia, and there's only two full-time farmers. And, and it's agricultural. I mean, like, You come out here, the closest gas station is 45 minutes away. I mean, there's nothing but farmland. This is all that ever has been. Um, Interesting studies by Virginia Tech, just literally at the base of this little hill that I'm sitting on. Uh, In 1997, Virginia Tech did this huge archaeological study, and they think that they have found, as good as anyone can find, the ancient uh, indigenous village of Monehasanaw, which has been inhabited consistently, uh, really continually for 8,000 years by indigenous peoples from the woodland uh, natives all the way to the Monacan and Manahoaca uh, modern indigenous tribes. And so this landscape has always been a stable home for people. And it wasn't until the culture around that home became decadent that the landscape became decadent. And so in order to heal the landscape's decadence, we have to heal the culture's decadence, right? And the only way to do that is to look your farmer in the face and say, I am me, you are you, this is my story. Let me hear your story. You create that relationship. And as that relationship matures and emerges, what is possible, right? That's a very open question, right? Like, it, it, like what's possible when you buy milk shipped from Pennsylvania? More economic results for Pennsylvania? I mean, like what's possible there? To some degree, it's incredibly limited. But when you have that relationship to your farmer, the world is open. There's no ceiling to the abundance that could be had.
0: Yeah, it's also really sterile, right? <laughs> yes. Like, I mean, I will go. I I drive to pick up raw milk, and I, I you know, it's it's like kind of black markety. It's not because it's totally legal, but they you meet in a parking lot, and and the farmer and his wife are there, um, and it's just the two of them that run the whole organization. Yeah. And every time I go, they're like, "Oh, hey, Corey, how many milks do you have this week?" Or you know, "Oh, you got some," you know. Uh, pork or something in the freezer let me grab it for you they know who I am you know they they know my name they know my kids um it's a it's a very localized or or um it's a it's a very communal sort of um engagement and and I think when I lived in the DC metro area and um that Frederick Maryland we would get milk from Pennsylvania because of the laws in Maryland about milk Mm -hmm. um and, and I would just go pick it up out of a cooler out of somebody's front yard. You know, I didn't even know the people who lived in the house that I was picking it up at. Yeah. Um, and I, I will say, you know, I really like this this process a lot better that I I know, you know, Farmer Sam and <laughs> he knows who I am. Um, it's it's definitely a, a much more connecting uh, relationship.
1: I like this idea of the happy cows. I actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about. Um, and I think I've heard that exact quote before, but um, it, it makes so much sense. Just when you think about your food and then the relationship, which I feel like we've discussed relationships a lot already, but the relationship between your food, the relationship between you preparing it and eating it with your family. Um, I even like to think, and Corey and I have talked about this, that, you know, we are far from perfect. And while we try to follow, you know, this, these certain guidelines for our families, there are moments where we're in a situation and the food is not up to our standard. And in those moments, our relationship with said individuals are more important than the you know, meal or the processed food that's in front of us. And it's just like, well, we're going to honor the people that we're with and we're going to honor our relationship with them and we're going to let go of the rest. And that actually kind of makes me think of um, that parallel of this idea of like, really the relationships are more important and, and well, also, you know, happy animals. So if your happy animals are closer to you and, um, and not just the animals, but the plants too. Happy yeah. plants and happy
2: animals. Happy life. Happy, it, it's yeah. An, it's interesting, you know. So many, and you know, I can give you a plethora of examples of farms around us, but like there's there's one farm in the Shenandoah Valley that typically raises thousands of of pastured uh, chickens for eggs and meat every year for the local community, and uh, they use certified organic, locally milled, soy free and non GMO feeds, and um, they 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 raise a particular breed that's not conventional that can breed on its own and. They've, they've really, to a large degree, killed themselves finance, financially and physically to create the best product possible. Mm-hmm. And, and what they found is that they have a decreasing, a decreasing number of customers every year buying their chickens. Every year it decreases. And so what did they do this year? They stopped raising chickens. They're not going to produce food that people aren't buying. And instead of making a less superior product in their own view, they just didn't raise a product. That that is the result of a community that never came together to support the growth of that community. Does that does that make sense? And so Mm -hmm. when relationships matter, right, and and you have the relationship back to the source, when you look at your local farmer in your face, and you know, Christine, you, you mentioned you've listened to some other podcasts and you probably know where this is going. But like when you look at your local farmer in the face and you ask, How can I help? that local farmer's opportunity to produce whatever you want them to produce has gone from absolutely zero to absolutely whatever you want it to be. When, when farmers are putting their blood, sweat, and tears and life savings, because believe me, it takes all of it uh, to produce food years in advance of you consuming it. I mean, it takes our farm three, three and a half, four years to finish a beef. Mm-hmm. And even when it's finished, it's still lighter than it should be just because of our paradigms and our, and our protocols. I care more about happy cows than I do regenerated soils and I care more about happy cows than fat cows. And interesting note, uh, uh, other scientists are actually proving that uh, marbling in beef is actually early stage ketoacidosis and diabetes. So like you can want your marbled beef, but you're just eating diabetic cows. And so we don't focus on that. And so it takes us three and a half, four years to raise a cow. It doesn't weigh as much as it should in even a more mainstreamed, uh, conventionally minded, but still regenerative system. And so we make less money on it. And so if we don't have consumers to support us, the first decision we have to make is to raise less cattle because it costs money to raise it. And if I can't sell it, if I don't have a community look at me in the face, asking how can I help? I'm not going to do that thing. So what is the first step in helping farmers be better farmers? If we understand better as less chemically dependent or not chemically dependent, more regenerative, as opposed to eroding the soils, et cetera, just basic understandings of ecological functioning. How do we help farmers to, to undergo that transition? It's by having a community. It's by understanding that there's a local populace that wants the food, that food, the, the better food, the more regenerative chemical free food, that's the way to get it done. I mean, there's Examples you can dive into all over the country where local bread companies started demanding via relationship or really started creating the opportunity for a demand to arise via the relationship of better grains. And local grain alliances are popping up all over the place where local farmers that have historically grown chemically infused GMO wheats and barleys and rye and oats. Are now transitioning over to an organic, localized, regenerative, no-till, cover crop-based system of wheat production, because the local bakeries are saying, "Hey, let's work together." There's a clothing company in North Carolina that what they do is they sell custom, 100% local and uh, and uh, 100% local cotton T-shirts to companies within that region with a QR code on them. So let's say you're an organization in Norwood, North Carolina, and you want to produce a T-shirt with your logo on it for whatever reason. Branding, farmers markets, employees to wear, what have you. You go to this company and the company then takes that, pays local cotton farmers ahead of time, ahead of the planting, not the harvest, but the planting and says, if you grow this cotton in this way, I will pay you more than the bank pays you. I will help you buy your seeds because we've created a creative economy. Not one that just lets the farmer grow and two years later, they get a little bit of the income, but no, he gets the income in the beginning. And what that organization is seeing is that companies who want the T-shirts want to be a part of that community. They want the QR code saying that this shirt when I I got one when I was teaching a course down in Norwood, North Carolina, and I scanned the QR code in front of all the students, 19 miles away was where the cotton was grown, 19 miles away. And you get chill and it's just like this existed. Not because the cotton growers said, you know what, dad, it. I want to grow better cotton. No, 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 no. It existed because an organization of people, that is to say a community of local individuals created a relationship that then fostered an abundant system to emerge. That is how health is occurring. That is how regeneration happens. So if you want a better system, stop being passive. Right. Don't sit back and say, oh, I wish I can find, you know, better corn, but it's okay. Like, yeah, eat the local corn, be there, invest in the local, but invest in such a way that abundance can arise and transform the local system into something so much more stable, so much more beautiful, so much more regenerative in time. Right. Don't expect the end in the beginning, but go through the process, create the local organic, I'm sorry, local cotton uh, clothing company, create the grain alliance. And then let the system emerge in symbiosis and we progress from the soul to the soil. Right. That, that's our vision.
1: See, when you say it like that, that gives me hope that it, it feels, <laughs> yeah, it feels much yeah. more attainable um, with that example. And when you say it like that, because, yes, as consumers, coming together as a community, we can make change. But that's, I think that's your whole point behind all of this, that's what we have to do. We have to come together. And that makes me think of um, something that happened in Chicago where there were these local farmers, I used to live in Chicago, and there were these local farmers and, you know, they were throwing away their organ meats, no one had any interest in them. And then someone came along, someone who I know, started asking for them and uh, buying them in bulk. And then this person started telling other people, And before you know it, um, now these farmers are selling these organ meats, and not only are they selling, but they're selling out of these organ meats because the community has essentially come together and said, no, we recognize that these are nutrient-dense foods and we want these. And so that's another small example of how that's happening and the power of the consumer um, when we actually speak up. But no. Go ahead. Well, I really wanted to touch on the organ meat part because you haven't touched on that in some of the other interviews. You've sort of grazed over it. Yeah. But if you wanted to say anything else, or Corey, if you had another.
2: I'm happy. I'll, I can dive in. Um, yeah, go for it. I want to quickly conclude your thought by saying um, th- this relationship and community, I, I think it's um, you know different thinkers from the space in which I echo. Um, you know, have come up with really interesting um, models around cooperatives and collectives and the co-ownership of land. I think that's the way it has to go. And I don't think the co-ownership of land has to be some, you know, nonprofit-based system where everybody legally co-owns aspects, but it's it's this idea that you are not living in the system in isolation, that there's co-ownership over these resources. That is really to say, in a non-mechanistic way, there's all of these relations all around us, and we have all of this relationship to these relations. And um, you know, the cotton farmer, the grain farmer, the beef farmer, whoever they are, they don't exist in isolation. And so there's this great collaborative that occurs when we come together as a community. There's the health, right? That's what lets the health emerge. Um, the organ meats, I assume you mean from the early aspects of my story, like my, my personal health story.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I feel like. So that's wait a minute, going backwards. But go ahead, Corey. What were you going to say?
0: I was just going to say, could you like maybe give your story really quickly if it's going to yeah. feed into it? Because we didn't, we were going to ask that at the beginning, and then we didn't. So no, let's, it, let's, in in all, that,
2: no. yeah. In all honesty, I'm glad you didn't. I um, oh. <laughs> I I I don't know how to tell people when they want to do a podcast that um, I, I don't want to direct them in any way. Like I really like the like the rawness of conversation, especially from. I, I don't know. I, I like that. But I'll tell you, every podcast I do, everybody wants to talk about the story in the beginning. Yeah. It takes like 30 <laughs> minutes and then we don't talk about anything else. And it's just like, oh my gosh, there's so much more. So anyways, I'm, like I'm that glad. That happens
0: every time I go on a show too. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. we Just like, let me direct you to this website that has yeah. my story written down.
1: You can go read that and then come back and listen to the rest <laughs> yes, of it. Just
2: so. pause <laughs> here. Just, just pause here. Go read it.
1: Um, wait, wait. Okay, one one quick thing. But So when I heard your beginning story at the beginning of um, the Homegrown podcast, you and Joey were talking about wrestling. And I was like, I have no interest in wrestling. And then at the very I know, and I, I was like, you know, pressing fast forward. And then you like mentioned something about the organ meats. And I was like, wait, this is what I'm interested in. And then you glazed over that. And I was like, no, no, no. Why didn't you talk more about that yes. part? That's what yes. I wanted to hear more about. But anyway. Okay,
0: so, so gloss over the wrestling part yes. and get straight to the organ meats then. Yeah, so
2: very much long story short. Um, I, was, I was homeschooled uh, for basically my whole life, uh, all four of my siblings and I. I was a second of four. Um, I have great things to say about homeschooling. Uh, We're homeschooling our children, just unbelievable life we had growing up. And uh, I was always more athletic than I was intellectual until athletics came to a halting and an abrupt end and then I became entirely intellectual. But the rest of my siblings were intellectual from the beginning and uh, have years ahead of me and uh, are years ahead of me today. Um, but my senior year in high school, uh, after, after living a very athletic and very healthy life, I was diagnosed with some pretty severe de- uh, degenerative genetic diseases. So really long story short. Uh, all of the uh, ball and socket joints, so my two shoulders and my two hips, were uh, either malformed at birth or I had some early trauma that nobody knows about, physical trauma, fell or something like that, that actually forced the heads of my femurs, so that's the ball in my hips or the heads of my whatever bone is in your arm, which also has a ball in the tip, to basically form as squares, not circles. And that was just one of the ways this manifested itself. There's many other ways. I have organ failure and other... It just anyways, it a severe degenerative uh, genetic disease. And so from my senior year in high school, all the way, probably until I was about 23, 24, whatever it was, um, just lived a life of surgeries, you know, taking my leg off and doing some pretty mm-hmm. severe stuff and putting it back on and all sorts of diagnostic procedures. I lost the ability to walk. And I lived at the Cleveland clinic for six months, learning how to walk again. And I would lay on a table and the doctor would touch my quad and he would say, flex, and I couldn't. And we would spend the week just trying to learn how to flex my quad again. So building the neural pathways back and like my, my lymphatic system and my central nervous system were all haywire, I think because of the surgeries, just uh, compounding and escalating problems on top of a very severe genetic, uh, degenerative genetic disease out of nowhere it just happened. And, and it all concluded more or less when I was sitting in the back porch of my family's home, My wife uh then and my wife now but we were married at that point in the story and she was off working and i was more or less a physical vegetable my brain obviously worked but uh, i was in the process uh i was i was at a particular part of my journey where i would lose 80 plus pounds in a span of a month month and a half two months and so we would i literally would be 200 pounds and that would be 120 pounds the next month and then we would spend the whole next month trying to gain it back uh, literally I would sit down at, at, at a table and my family would surround me and just be like, eat, 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 eat. You're not allowed to get up until you eat this because if I didn't get back to 200 pounds and I lost another 80 pounds, you know, I'm going to be 110, hundred pounds, whatever it was. I was 24 years old and I, le- I weighed less than I did in the fifth and sixth grade. Um, So more or less a physical vegetable. And I was reading a book that I had been gifted just enjoying uh, the spring and summer, I'm sorry, the uh, summer, uh, spring in Ohio where I was, born and raised Northeast Ohio, which by the way, is the only time to be in Ohio. If you're like, Oh, that sounded nice. It's not. Ohio is such a sad place. It gets 80 days of sun a year. And I say that my dad probably, I don't know if he listens to these podcasts or not. He loves Ohio. Um, He moved down to the farm here in Virginia when we did. And I think he was very sad about it. But Ohio is a very horrible place. I mean, it's 80 days of sun a year. It's flat. It's completely industrial. (laughs) You're laughing hard, but it's true. It is true. But spring in Ohio is a gorgeous time. For the first time, you know, you just, we lived in the snow belt where like you would literally get three feet of snow at a time, you know, right underneath Lake Erie. It was just horrible, but it wasn't beautiful. Like I would love three feet of snow if I lived in Montana or Colorado or Utah or something, but it's just cold, dreary, flat covered in snow. <laughs> well, anyways, I was sitting back there enjoying a good book in the spring period of Ohio's momentary brilliance. And my mom walked out of the backsliding glass door and she said, um, she said, Daniel, we've tried everything. And we had, I mean, we've traveled all around the country. Like I said, we've taken all my limbs off my body and learned to rewalk. Like we really tried everything. Eastern, Western, I mean, daily acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, all, I mean, everything, truly Eastern, Western, headlong falls into both of those paradigms and, uh, methodologies, mythology, I mean, like everything. And she said, but the only thing we haven't tried is chickens. You know, and I say that now, as I, as I think, I, I think about it back then, it was just the craziest, weirdest thing, you know, and, and, and what I think, and, and I'm currently writing a book on this very story. Um, and so I've had a lot of time to meditate and reflect on it. You know, what she was saying is this difference between passivity and activity. And, and I think that's true. Um, I think so, but it gets a little bit deeper than that. While we had passively been seeking for health, right? Just going to doctors, hey, help me, please help me fix this. How do I stop losing the weight? What we had never done was looked at the world around us. And instead of seeing it as natural, right? The natural world and the human world, right? The medical world and the scientific world, like you, instead of bifurcating the world into its many different parts, like it's some gasoline engine or combustion engine, carburetor tires axle whatever it, it we turned and looked at the natural world and said wait a second this is us you know in in, in ancient hebrew um which i then proceeded to learn i love languages it's interesting when, when god creates man he calls it ha he calls them ha adam which means the man ha adam and when he creates the earth he calls it ha adamah and and the addition of at the end really means like the life of and so like a, a proper translation of mankind is earthling not mankind i mean if you want to take it Perfectly linguistically, a, a good translation of mankind is earthling. We're made of the earth. We are the earth. There's very little separation there. Um, you know, and we turned to good food. We started trying to really live and sync with nature. And then all of a sudden we learned that we are nature and all of this philosophy arose. But really, from a practical, grounded perspective, when we bought those 100 chickens that day, Um, Bless my wife's heart. She got home from work. I looked at her and I said, Morgan, we're farmers now. We bought chickens. And she just, she said, okay. And, you know, 12 years later or whatever it's been, um, you know, we both farm full time here on 400 acres in Central Virginia. And she's right there with me. And um, just, just as amazing as anyone else could be. And um, well, anyways, we, we, we started to care about the connection between us and and our earth, and then we started to eat better. And then we started to eat more locally, because we found that the best foods were the local foods. And then we started to fall in love with the farmers producing those best local foods. And then opportunities started to exist where we could start working on these local farms. And I, at the time, was a mathematics and computer science major in college. I thought that was the best opportunity for me. I could sit down, work at a computer all day. I didn't have to be entirely physically active. Um, and that's when my paradigm really for the rest of my life and its journey changed we started to work on these local farms, Morgan and I. And I'll never forget, one of these farms was a um, Irish Dexter regenerative and holistically managed farm in Northeast Ohio. And uh, this where the organ meats come in. And I'll never, we we would go there quite often. We would build fence, we would move cattle, we would, you know, tag baby calves born. And we learned so much about, you know, a better version of agriculture at that farm. And uh, at the end of every day that we would work, we would go back into the farmhouse And, uh, and, um, the family would look at us and they would say, you know, well, like here's a a pot of bone broth and here's a tongue or a kidney or a heart or a liver or whatever it was as payment, right? Like they had sold all of their meats, but unlike your Chicago example, they had not really got, had a good community around them to buy the organ meats and, and bone broth and bones first. And so they paid us in broth and organs and bones and all these things. And Morgan and I's diet transitioned immediately. Uh, what I mean by diet transition immediately is like, we didn't have a lot of money. We were also experimenting with a lot of foods. Um, yeah, heart sounds great. Kidney sounds great. Like gallbladder or I'm sorry, not gallbladder spleen tastes horrible, but like it's decently great, you know, kidneys, livers, tongues. I mean, we, we really started to eat the awful, right? The things that animals consume first. There's a lot of books, a lot of podcasts out there. We can learn a lot more about organ meats. Um, you know, at the time I was reading an or- a book, primal nutrition, primate nutrition, prehistoric, prehistorical nutrition, something like that it has a bunch of cave paintings on the front. And it made the comment that, um, you know, when an animal dies in nature, its organs are eat- eaten first, but mm-hmm. humankind eats the organs last if they ever eat them at all. Right. And, and, and the interesting thing is so much health returned when we started to eat a bone broth or bone marrow or, you know, beef organ, because that's what we had was beef, uh, diet. Uh, life returned. A lot of happiness returned. Uh, a lot of depression that I was fighting with went away. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't the organs in pure totality. It was a whole lifestyle change and everything else, of course. Um, but it was a huge moment in our lives, a huge moment. Um, I-, I could say so much more. I'll stop there. That was long enough.
1: No, that's it's so cool that you guys actually embraced that because I, I don't know... I mean, that's that's really difficult to say, you know what, We're I don't know what type of meat this is, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and try it out and be adventurous and, and eat it, especially in today's world where the organ meat supplements are sold everywhere you look. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah.
2: I'll tell you, one of, one of the best ways we consume them, and I hope this is a very grounded and applicable take home for most people, um, but we would take the bones, we would throw them in a crock pot, cover it with water, and then we would throw an organ in or another organ or two in. Making organ bone broth, right? You never have to see it. You never have to taste it, really. It's just bone broth. The broth making process, just like it sucks the marrow and the nutrients out of the bones, the calcium and phosphorus, etc. it's going to suck a lot of those nutrients out of the organs as well. It's an eating, It's the easiest first step into consuming organ meats, like whether or not you want to have steak tacos or tongue tacos or, you know, roasted or braised liver, like, I don't know, you know, take a step into that. Try it out, you know, but move slow, of course. But like throwing some organs, raw organs into your bone broth, letting it simmer for 24 to 48 hours and then drinking it. Like you don't even know the difference. Throw some carrots and onions and spinach and whatever else you have locally grown in your garden or your neighbor's garden, throw it in there as well. That, that broth is going to be a healing, oh my goodness, alchemy to the problems of the modern world.
1: An elixir. Yeah. Yeah. So, true um, elixir. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I'm glad that we got it in. That was what I wanted to hear. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad.
0: Okay. Um, I definitely want to ask you, because um, I know you said you have three kids, right? Would you mind telling us how old your kids are? Mm.
2: Yeah, you're going to have to stop me on this. I can talk about my kids all day long. Um, <laughs> so just raise your hand when, when you're done listening. No, I we have three kids. Oh, Go ahead. Wait, wait,
0: yeah, give me give me the ages, and then I have a, a bit of a follow-up.
2: Got it. So uh, we have three children. Eloin is uh, five. She's about to turn six next week. Uh, uh, Tecumseh is four. Yeah, he's four. He always thinks he's five, but he's four. Uh, and then Sequoia, the youngest, she's two.
0: Okay. Um, all right, and then what you have you have young kids yes. um so with those young kids i know you said you homeschool them with your wife um, and you guys have a farm and your kids are home with you all the time all the time um <laughs> um what are you guys doing you and your wife doing to um you know make sure that your kids are learning this community lifestyle and, um, participating on within your homestead or or your farm, I mean. Um, and, uh, yeah, just really, really making sure that they are, uh, involved in this whole process.
2: That's a good question. Uh, full transparency. We don't have much of an option to not let them be completely involved in the whole process. Um, and that is a blessing. And I realize that not everybody has that blessing. So I'll just put that to the side. Um, from a, a very, from the morning they're born, like the minute they're born. So, like when, when our oldest other one was born, uh, three days later, maybe it was four, my wife and I together processed like 500 chickens that day or something. And she was just literally like a four day old in a pouch in front. And it was what it was, um, you know, and there's better ways to do it, but at the same time, you know, we live in the, it doesn't matter the specifics, but the point is it, it happens and, and they've been there ever since. Like um, when, when we call her Winnie for short, but when Winnie was maybe three, so a couple of years ago, the cows all got out and there's hundreds of cattle and they're big and they're horned and we raise a very particular breed. That's a mix between a feral uh, Mexican cow, more or less, um, and a African feral cow, more or less. And so it's huge and horned and it runs like a wild horse and it actually gallops. It's the only breed of cow that still gallops. And so when they run with these huge horns and huge bodies, it just, it looks like a wild herd of rumbies, like true wild outback horses. It's gorgeous. Well, anyways, they got out and our three-year-old little feisty uh, daughter, Winnie, she runs up to them and starts throwing her hands up before we even could. And she's just like, not this way, cow. And I have a video. I can send it to you later. Not this way, cow. Not the way you can And She literally starts driving them back into the, the, the gate. Which had been opened morgan opened it to drive them back in and she just starts she drove a significant portion of these cows back in the gate i have a video of it's it's hilarious this little squatty little three-year-old with blonde hair it was winter time with this huge car hard coat that was three sizes too small it was mine when i was a child just like not the way you can go cow i'll never forget that phrase not the way you can go and and it's just that's the life they were born into Right. And so we knew from an early age that there was no escaping that. And so we had to do a number of things. So I was homeschooled growing up and I and I take this entirely from my mom. My mom was very uh, ill educated. She lacked a great amount of education. She grew up in an area of Cleveland, Ohio, where if you walked out, the probability of you getting shot was pretty high. And so they were never really allowed to go outside. uh, Constant pressure. And there was a nunnery next door to her house, it was actually connected to her house. And so she would actually spend most of her days in the nunnery being raised by the nuns and such. And it was just a very different life, a very sheltered to some sort of degree life, uh, but honest and amazing life in, in another degree. But education was never really a part of it. And so when she began homeschooling us, she knew this from the beginning, right? Like a good holistic thinker, if you will, Um, she assumed she was wrong. She was humble from the beginning and said, I don't know what I don't know, but I know that I don't know it. And that's a very fine place to start. And so she said, if I can teach my children to love learning and to know how to learn, I'm good. Like I don't have to teach them, you know, about the war of 1812 if they want to learn about it and I can instill that love of learning. And then I help them understand how they learn as opposed to somebody else learns, but how they particularly learn, they can learn anything you know, and it's really interesting, I, uh, I, I took algebra one in ninth grade. And just because of the failures of our system from an academic perspective, uh, especially because of athletics, I never took math again. So algebra one was the last math I ever took. And it was in ninth grade. Everybody else I knew was taking geometry in ninth grade or precalculus in ninth grade, like, you know, I was, I was quite behind in math, I then went to college studied math and graduated as the top mathematics student at the entire university. Like, I had the ability to learn and I wanted to learn it. I just didn't want to learn it in high school. And then as soon as college came around, I said, what? This is, and, and you, know, you learn it. And so and to a large degree, she succeeded exponentially more than I think she ever could have. And we take that same philosophy for our children. And so for instance, instead of trying to get them to eat good food, we just from an early age had them fall in love with the best kind of food. Like we process all of our own meat on the farm. It's legal if you process it for yourself and only for yourself. I can't process it for anybody else, but, you know, it's a privilege to, to do what we do. But like from the get go, they've only ever tasted fresh meat, you know, and from the, like, that is to say, like on farm process, low stress, low cortisol, field harvested, fresh meat from from the beginning ages. They've only ever eaten tomatoes fresh off the vine in the garden that has unprecedented amount of soil organic matter and mulch and and communities supporting vegetative act like we went on vacation. Earlier this year for the first time in seven years. So all of Winnie's life, she's only five. She's never been on vacation. I mean, we kind of live like we're on vacation here, because <laughs> like I don't know what today is. I guess it's Friday, but like I have no conception of time. You just when you farm and you live in the middle of nowhere, that's just the case. Um, and so I guess we're always on vacation to some degree, a very weird vacation. But we went on vacation and we went to the local grocery store and bought some tomatoes to make some salsa on vacation. And the kids wouldn't eat it. Sequoia, Tecumseh, and Winnie, they wouldn't eat it. They're like, Mom, what is this? And we're like, it's it's tomatoes, you know, as salsa. And they're like, it tastes like water. And Sequoia, so she's two, okay, realize this. And this is nothing of our own doing. I, I like to say we just we just never, we just, I just feel like we haven't screwed them up that bad yet, is, is the way I would say it. <laughs> but like Sequoia, one, one night, you know, so anyways, they didn't eat the tomatoes, but like one night we were separating cattle uh, for this big deal the next day, Morgan and I, and we were out working late until like 10, 10, 10 10 PM in the corrals by the barns. And the kids were just sitting there watching the whole night and nobody had dinner. And so my wife, she pulled out this like three, four year old box of this like organic cereal that she had bought years ago. And she was like, just screw it. You know, she put it in some bowls, slapped some raw Mm -hmm. milk on it. And she was like, that's dinner tonight. And we've never had dinner like this because like when you have all of this stuff around you, In the spring and the fall, probably a quarter, 25 plus percent of our diet is wild harvested foods. It's just so copious, so abundant around us. Like, why do we have cereal when you can eat a salad of American beech leaves? Like, and it tastes just, I mean, it's, and it's right there and it's free. And with the money we make, farming free is always good for us. And um, anyways, the kids wouldn't touch it. They started like nibbling. They were just like spitting it there that they couldn't figure out what in the world it is. A five-year-old, maybe a four-year-old, a three-year-old and a one-year-old at this time. And um, Sequoia, our our youngest, she looks at me and she's like, no. And so I just pulled out a jar of this homemade sauerkraut. I slapped it on the table and she ate the whole thing. She was like, I don't want any of this puffy looking stuff. Like, don't give me corn puffs. I want the sauerkraut. Like, give me the real stuff, dad. And And the interesting thing is, and I can say this from so many different perspectives, and I am rambling once more, but like what we have witnessed is children born in a very natural state which again, we have the privilege to witness and, and participate in. Um, they, re- like they learn the animacy of everything all around them from the beginning. Like when they see a butterfly, it's amazing. Like it's not a butterfly. It's so much more than a butterfly. Like when they see a tree, it's, it's, it's like a, a real thing. Like a, like, a, like a human is a real thing, right? It's not like, oh, I learned about that and I've never really been able to touch one. It's as real as they are real. And, um, and I think that's a fine place to start. Like you were saying, uh, I actually, I forget who said this. One of you, one of you just said that this earlier, it's that like, we've been raised for so long for hundred years, at least in this reductionist, modern commercial type society, how are we going to break that? And so if your question is how do we raise children in such a way that we can c- co-create a community from the beginning? Like, how how do we raise them up to to not have to be retrained? In a large sense, it's like feed them the fresh tomato. Like, have them fall in love with life itself from the beginning. Have them fall in love with going to the local farmer's market just five minutes down the way where all of our neighbors just sit and talk and barter and trade. Like, we go to the farmer's market to barter. Nobody goes there to really buy anything, right? Because, like, why would I give you money? I'll just give you some corn. You give me some beef. I'll trade the beef for some bread. Like... It's just one massive and, and, and you fall in love with life from the beginning. That's why I said, if we've ever had success, it's just because we haven't screwed up yet is, is the way we like to say it. I don't know. Did I answer your question, Corey?
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So maybe outside of your own personal family, what would you say to people who are living in, um, you know, cities or suburbs or something? Yeah. Either, either. To not screw up their kids yet, or <laughs> or um, to start investing in their local communities. You know, when they when they look around themselves and they see perfectly manicured backyards, yeah. and um, you know they do go to the farmers market, but but they go with their credit cards and yeah, um, they're you know very nice little bags that they've purchased yeah specifically for holding vegetables.
2: N- Number one. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't feel yourself as any less than anyone else. I I think that's, that's number one, like be so, I love this quote that I'm going to roughly and horribly paraphrase, but be so jealous of your life, so excited about what you've been gifted um, in your life and the people that you have and the place that you are, that you are just so jealous over it, like be that. Don't be this social media type generation that's just like, oh, I wanna be that, or I wanna be like this, or I listen to Daniel on this random podcast, and he just have this wild life with his feral kids, and like I want that. Unless you really want it, then go get it. But like be so happy where you are. Like we're not happy where we are. And I think that is a mm. huge plague in our society. And and there's so much to say there, but skipping over that, what what I tell people is it if I was in your shoes, which the only advice I can give is the advice I would give myself. Take your children outside. And, and if you live in a condo, go to the local park. If you live in an apartment, local park. If you have a backyard, go to your backyard. with The closest spot that could possibly have non-human life in it. Okay? Go there as a family and, and talk about the wonderful magic of what you guys are gonna find. Like who are we gonna find, right? And then lay down on the floor, move the leaves, pull some grass back, you know, pull a stick that had fell, like move it around a little bit whatever that means you know pick up the park bench and and see where the park bench had hit the soil floor you know for 10 years or something. like just move life around and just try to find like an ant it sounds ridiculous just but like just hear me find an ant right and lose your brain over that ant right because until the children can understand that they are one aspect of a beautiful and larger created world like how are they supposed to relate to their fellow individual Like, how am I supposed to truly like participate in a healthy, singular, marvelous, enclosed, uh, community when like, I don't see all the people in the community as like magical and unique and beautiful and wonderful, right? Like falling in love with a created world, which you are one aspect of, I think is a brilliant way to get the children's energies and minds and creativity and like imaginations, like really going. Like find the ant and and follow the ant or find a grasshopper and just run around the park as it runs around, runs away from you, right? Like, I don't care what it is, but like go find life and just interact with the magic that is that life. And slowly and surely what we have found in different nature groups that we've had out here, different homeschooling groups that have had summer camps out here is all of a sudden what you see in the eyes of the child is this like intense love for themselves for the land for the community for the creator for the created and it just goes in that direction right like humans as adults we can be like oh we want to foster a community so you you know what to do right we all have support groups and fun groups and meet up groups and mom groups and dad like we, we know how to create groups but children having them fall in love with life in the truest sense like go to the local park find yourself an ant and follow it around and just lose your brain with how fast it moves how big of a leaf it moves in terms of its body size you know how bad it hurts when it bites you because you picked up the wrong kind because you're in coastal georgia like (laughs) like fall in love with that i I, it, it sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth to say it um but we've just watched dozens and dozens and dozens of children's eyes change like all of a sudden like the world is open it's not just like this linear place where they' they you know they wake up and then they go through life and then they go to sleep but all of a sudden there's magic and beauty and wonder and their imagination is just alive again and what happens in that imaginative sphere I don't know I, I think it's quite unlimited
1: I love the simplicity of it I um, it makes me think just this morning and I live in a suburb so I have you know a small backyard um, but my six-year-old found, a cricket that was on its back. And she was just like enthralled with it. She had never seen a cricket before, I guess, I don't know. Um, and she was asking me about it and, and then she took a leaf and she was experimenting with it. Why was it on its back? And she, you know, tried to put it on its, uh, right side up and then she took it over to the grass. And I mean, it was this whole ordeal for, you know, 30 minutes. She was completely enthralled with the cricket and my, my three-year-old was with her and, you know, watching and, but yeah, that's what it makes me think of. So I think that all of that is very doable with kids, and and the beauty of kids and what you're suggesting is it forces us to slow down, mm-hmm. and it forces us to really view the world with wonder, um, yes. which is something that as adults we lose as we get older. Um, we lose that ability, and especially in today's modern world, we don't see. The beauty of the natural world around us, um, especially though the those of us that are in you know like suburban lives or city lives and stuff like that. So,
2: yeah, it's it's intrinsic. It, ha- it our our desire, I think, to be connected to that which we are and are made of, I, I think, is intrinsic, and it it's very fine for that to be the case. I think what a lot of modern culture does is it separates us from each other by also separating us from like the land and the birds and, you know, and zoos and, you know, animals and petting zoos, like that's all beautiful and fine. Right. But like there's an ant just outside of your door and your child would lose their brain over it, you know, and, and we as humans, or as as adults as well, I, you know, just, we, we can't think that we're going to regenerate the soil by only caring about soil organic matter. Like there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of living organisms in a teaspoon of soil, Mm -hmm. right? Just a teaspoon, hundreds of billions, if not billions. And now if we can just get our children's minds to not be closed to think that they are humans and the natural world is something distinct, but there's magic in both. And because they are literally the same place, right? Human world and the created natural world, all one one whole. I, I think that health could follow that. Um, in my opinion. I don't know. I could be wrong.
1: Do you, um, I think we might be nearing the end just because I'm (laughs) almost, I'm not sure when my three-year-old is going to wake up from his nap. But (laughs) um, (laughs) do you want to tell us about the Rabinia Institute and what it is and your work and what you guys do?
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'll I'll be quick. Um, So in in 2017, leading into 2018, my wife and I co-founded the Rubini Institute. Um, I am the computer science mathematics guy turned whatever the heck I am. Uh, She is an actual trained biologist. She knows what she's talking about when it comes to biology. We co-founded the organization together. Um, We co-founded it because uh, we were teaching a lot of classes at the time, Um, really unknowing that what we were thinking about and how we were thinking about Uh, It uh, was really that different. And then uh, in 2019, we officially uh, formed the organization, uh, became a Savory Institute hub. So the Savory Institute is a global organization, nonprofit about regenerating the world's grasslands, uh, run by uh, really uh, um, co-developed with uh, Alan Savory, a a gentleman from Rhodesia, now modern day Zambia and Zimbabwe, and Daniela Ivara Howell from Argentina. Um, all about uh, regenerative agriculture and holistic decision-making, if I can be incredibly blunt and precise. That was in 2019. And between 2019 and today, uh, the Ravinia Institute has grown to really advocate, demonstrate, educate, if you will, um, all over the country. Uh, we speak, we teach, we write, uh, uh, we have courses. Uh, We do a lot of consulting and land management. And so we help farmers farm their land. We help farmers understand how to farm their land. We help farmers vision their land. We help design their land. We do a lot of work. Uh, We help monitor via the ecological health, uh, via the ecological health of their land, uh, their particular farms to help them understand how to really understand the response that the land is giving them. So land management is very similar to like a human relationship. Here we are relationships once more. But, um, you know, not every person wants to receive love in a particular way. We have love languages, for instance, not every land base wants to receive regeneration or the actions of regeneration in particular ways. And thus, we have the love languages or the languages of regeneration being relationship. And so, like last year, we consulted on over 100,000 acres of farmland. Um, and so that's really what Rubinia is primarily looking at, is education, teaching, and mentorship and, and support. Um in 2015, we founded Timshel Wildland, which is, I guess, our farm. It's 400 acres here in Central Virginia that I'm talking from now. I call it our day job. It's, it's what we do. It's our passions. It's where a lot of our philosophies are rooted in some sort of actual paradigm or methodology. Um, we raise a bunch of cows, a bunch of goats, a bunch of sheep. Historically, those species plus chickens and pigs. We have gardens. We have orchards. Uh, there's just a lot going on. Um, a lot of wild places that we're nurturing with wild animals like ponds and pond systems and things. But um, yeah, that's us.
0: Excellent. Can you give us um, where people can find you, your websites, your social media, whatever it is that you want to share? Yes. I know you have books that are available on like Amazon, right? Yes.
2: Yep. So okay. Um, I make this, so I'm a rambling person and it's an hour and a half into this interview and yeah. I, I'm, I'm exceptionally long-winded and I appreciate the time. Uh, but I'll make this very short. Uh, you can just go to my personal website and find everything you need to know. It's DanielFirthGriffith.com. You can put it in the show notes or something. Uh, you can access the Robinia's website and all the Instagrams and all the books and all the Amazons and all the everything else from dot
0: Excellent. Okay. Wait. Christine, we'll put all that in the show
2: yeah,
1: notes. Yeah. Yeah, that'll it'll definitely go in the show notes. Um, you said something about homeschool summer camp.
2: Yeah, it's something we're trying. It hasn't been incredibly successful from like a desirability perspective. We're still trying to work out like how to, like the timeline, like the rhythm of the time. Like, do families want to come out once a month? Once, you know, do they want to be out here for three days? Is it like a once a week kind of thing? Do mom and dads want to come? We've it, like we've probably iterated five different times. Um, the children seem to love it. Sometimes the parents wish it was more consecutive or less consecutive or something. But yeah, we do we do summer camps here.
1: I'm going to have to ask you more about that next summer. Please, a- ask, my ask, own,
2: yeah. ask away. Yeah, I have a lot of failures to share from like a planning perspective. Like I said, the I kids think- love it. The adults just probably wish it was more organized or more rhythmic or something.
0: I think homeschool parents are kind of difficult like because, th- and I, I say this, you know, like I was homeschooled, my husband was homeschooled, we we're homeschooling our children. Like I think homeschool parents are difficult because I think that in general, <laughs> in general, none of us are general, right? Like yes. we are all doing things so differently. And, like you know, like, like we go, we have a co-op that our kids go to and half the parents at the co-op, which the co-op was, two days a week and half the parents want to be all day. And I'm over here like, please, like three hours a week is plenty for me. Right. Um, And I'm like, no, I don't actually I want to be done by May. I want to be I don't want to start till after Labor Day. And everybody else is like, no, we're starting at the very beginning of August. And um, anyway, I just think I think homeschool parents can be very difficult because we're all so unconventional.
2: Yeah. And, and then you have to deal with like a lot of the homeschool families that we've run into are so well experienced. Like this is yeah, not their first true. farm-based summer camp. And They're like, well, <laughs> last year we went to this one farm and right. they had crafts for the kids. And I'm like, daggone it! You know, crafts.
1: Like, Who needs crafts? Just let them run wild on the land, right? We,
2: yeah, we did that. They found a uh, cattle bone, a cattle skull's uh, jaw one of the kids with its teeth still in it just rotting in some oh. field I had I no idea it was there and he and the kid took it he couldn't have been more than 12 years old he took it and he sawed all the way through this branch on the field it was a white oak branch probably four or five inches in diameter just use it as a saw and I was like wow that child's brain today just went places and uh, no craft could have taken him there
1: that's cool yeah totally oh I mean weird
2: I mean depending on what you believe but I, I loved it <laughs>
1: no I mean yeah that's that's incredible Wow. So, Talk about imagination. I'm definitely yeah. gonna be hitting you up for that next year. Please um I think other than that, I wanna make sure um I think we I think we hit all our main yeah, points. We, we did.
0: Yeah, this is always this is the deal, guys. We we write an outline and then we never stick to the outline, and then we go back to the outline and we're like, did we maybe get everything that we really wanted to say?
1: No, (laughs) but we usually do. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think we did this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. This was a really um, such a rich conversation and uh, an incredible privilege to meet you. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll see you around at some point. Um, if you ever come into the Weston A. Price community or conference, um, we need more thought leaders like you. There is no doubt.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I appreciate it. Um, yeah, Yeah. I would love to meet you guys somewhere sometime it would be my blessing. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed this, the, the, the space. Thanks for letting me, uh, ramble a little bit and thanks for grounding the conversation. It needs grounded. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no worries. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed uh, your time with us and that you were able to glean some some important nuggets from this conversation and you can apply it to your own daily life. Uh, as always, please rate and review. This gets our... Um, this allows other people to find the podcast and um, to listen to it and to participate in these really important conversations. So thank you so much. And until next time.
0: Thanks guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to modern ancestral mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at nourish the littles and online at at nourishthelittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at for Sake and online at ForNutrientsSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral mamas.
1: expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and eyes and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview.
0: The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.